0: Let me be perfectly explicit in this podcast. Okay, here it goes. Today, June 27th, 2018, from Slate. It's the Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat from Queens, will actually get to be a Democrat from Queens in the U.S. House of Representatives, in all likelihood, because the 28-year-old Latina beat ten-term incumbent Joe Crowley. Ocasio-Cortez is young. I think she may be a renter and not an owner. By the way, still checking that one out. And she is in keeping with the demographics of her district. It's pretty close. Whites listed as 46.5%, Hispanics of 46.9% of New York's 14th district. And by the way, the 14th district is just nuts. It's Queens and the Bronx. Ever been to New York? Those are two places not connected. Except by, and a congressional district needs to be contiguous, there is an exception if there is a bridge connecting them. So, yes, the Whitestone Bridge is the river that runs through it, connecting the disparate populations of the Bronx and Queens. You root for the Yankees. I root for the Mets. Do we really have any common ground? Oh, of course we do. It's the Whitestone Bridge. Anyway. But this race or this result is being compared to Eric Cantor's upset in 2014 by Tea Partier David Bratt. Since Bratt's still in Congress, I don't know if he calls himself a Tea Partier anymore. He's a professor of economics. He's pretty conservative. He was just an outsider. Oh, no. He's been in there since 2014. Now he's an insider. There are differences between New York's 14th and Virginia's 7th uh, in terms of districts, but also in terms of the results. Yeah, The Virginia district is pretty Republican. Back then, Cook rated as 10 Republican. The uh, 14th in New York at this point is plus 29 Democrat. So it's even more blue than that one was red. But the big thing is that Cantor was Speaker of the House then. This time around, Crowley just mentioned as a possible speaker, and I have to be honest, mentioned a lot more after he lost than before he went down to defeat. Oh, you know, you just defeated a eventual, possible, could-be speaker. And then... Another big difference was there really was the Tea Party then. It was quite a movement. And I know Ocasio-Cortez is a Bernie supporter and a Bernie volunteer. But Bernie's group, uh, Our Revolution, has not done so well in elections. But the big difference is this. Are you ready? The election results from four years ago had Brat beating Cantor with Brat getting 36,000 votes and Cantor getting almost 29,000, all right, turnout of 65,000. This time around, Ocasio-Cortez got 15,897 and Crowley got 11,761. So yes, she beat Crowley, but would have lost to Eric Cantor by uh, 13,001 vote, actually. So what does it mean? I'm not degrading her Victory. She needed a very low turnout to win. She knew that. She said it. Just kind of troubling thing about democracy, that there are 710,000 people in a congressional district and essentially 15,000 or almost 16,000 of them, they were the ones who get to decide who goes to Congress. But you know whose fault it is? It's everyone else's fault. It is not Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and maybe a low turnout will benefit her, will get her the job to begin with, and then her youth and new ideas will spur higher turnout and enthusiasm down the road. In the spiel today, the upcoming composition of the Supreme Court and an unlikely glimpse into the court's most conservative member. But first, Susan Hennessy is in the house. And by in the house, I mean in her own studio, but it's very, very fine sound quality. She will be here to discuss the latest SCOTUS ruling on the travel ban. And reality winner, you know her, she's the NSA contractor who's pled guilty to giving some documents that she shouldn't have given to The Intercept. <music> When I'm feeling insecure, which really isn't often, you know, it's my privilege as I walk through the world, but I, I grasp for security, and I also grasp for rationality, and that means I grasp for whatever the ear version is for the Rational Security podcast. One of the stalwarts of that podcast and just, I think, the premier writer on issues of national security is Susan Hennessy. She is the executive editor of the Lawfare blog and a fellow at Brookings. Hello, Susan. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Hi. Thanks for having me.
0: So much to talk about. Let's talk about the Supreme Court's upholding of the Trump travel ban. Just in practical terms, I don't know if you know how many Somalis have been coming into the country and how many Somalis will be coming in, but do you have any sense of what this ban will actually do in terms of an influx of or a decrease of people to this country? And then what will it do in terms of security?
1: Yeah, so I think the short answer to that is probably not much of anything. So the actual sort of effect of the ban itself on on migration or security, I I think, is relatively limited. The more interesting parts of the the case are what the Supreme Court is indicating in terms of how it thinks about the question of deference uh, when the president makes comments that are at odds with the representations of his Justice Department. So, of course, the president is saying, uh, you know, it's a Muslim ban, Uh, you know, he, he he tweets. Uh, he makes it pretty clear that sort of racial animus is, is at the heart of this. And so ultimately what the court decided to, to do in its, in its ruling, and in sort of the, I think the, the heart of the ruling, is the decision to say, look, um, we aren't going to look at the tweets. We aren't going to look at those presidential statements. Um, we're going to focus on sort of on, on the DOJ filing. And um, the value here is is what Trump can say, what he can signal. Uh, and, and on that, you know, I, he clearly is claiming a victory.
0: Right, right. But But if the substance of the ban isn't so great, is the ire based on the ban commensurate? I mean, if this is an almost meaningless ban that was allowed to exist, even though Trump was Trump displayed animus towards a religious group, doesn't that have something to say about, you know, just how upset we should be as a society about it?
1: Yeah, so look, I, I think you can gauge, you can say, you know, there, there's an overreaction occurring based on sort of, the, you know, the narrow procedural points. But but I do think what people are reacting to, and, and I think appropriately reacting to, is something a little bit broader than that. And that's the notion of, you know, a, a president who kind of, you know, he, he says the quiet part out loud, as, you know, as the, the saying goes, and, and is really quiet quite clear about being motivated by improper considerations, you know, racial and religious animus and, and the notion that the president of the United States can say, I want a Muslim ban. I'm doing this because I want to ban Muslims and then issue this kind of executive order, you know, even if the, the process is sufficiently strong or sufficiently rigorous that it, that it can discipline it down into something less effective. You know, I, I do still think that says something pretty powerful And and I think the Supreme Court's statement that uh, the president effectively can get away with that. You know, I I do think that has sort of broader uh, implications. And I, I think that's what people are responding to.
0: Let's talk for a second about Reality Winner. She was the NSA contractor who leaked documents. And she got what to me, I mean, it seems like a five year sentence. You could kill a guy and not get that much time in jail. What do you think of it?
1: You know, so it is um, – I don't think that she actually has uh, has been formally sentenced. I think that was the, the ask by mm-hmm. the government, although, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on that. You know, look, it, it is a stringent sentence or, you know, it's, it's sort of a harsh sentence that they're asking for. But, you know, it, it's a pretty extreme and an clear-cut case, right? This is somebody who had an obligation to protect national security information, classified information, uh, removed that information, you know, from from a classified space and, and mailed it to a reporter. And so uh, and, you know, and, and has uh, pled guilty to all of those facts. And so, you know, this isn't a case in which there's lots and lots of gray area. Um, you know, I, I'd be surprised if uh, if she does end up serving out that that full sort of five year sentence. And, um, you know, typically we see sentences more in the two and three year range, you know. But, but honestly, the, the facts are just so clear cut here that, you know, that there's no surprise that the government is is prosecuting this case and that they're doing so aggressively.
0: Did her revelations, which were about Russian military? cyber attacks, do you think they hurt national security or was it more the symbolism of them?
1: So I think first and foremost, they didn't substantially inform the debate. And that's one of the things, you know, that it's it's a shame, right? So This individual, uh, you know, their, their life is ruined or at least profoundly altered over publicizing this information that, that I don't think actually gave lots of new insight into what occurred. You know, at the end of the day, we don't know what we are looking at in this report. We don't know if it's been fully vetted, what level of confidence the intelligence community has in the information. That said, you know, it is relatively detailed technical information, and that tends to be the kinds of disclosures that are most harmful because it gets into that realm of sources and methods, information. So not just what the intelligence community knows, but how it knows it. Uh, And those tend to be the areas in which disclosures have the most long-term operational consequences. Yeah.
0: And it does seem to me that you have to not only send a message, but impose a penalty for anyone, a contractor who thinks that it's okay to violate the law, no matter what the consequence of that violation is to operate outside the chain of command. All those seem to be what our society should be doing in terms of enforcing the law. But but I wonder, well, let me get you on the record. What do you think the penalty for Snowden should be?
1: You know, I I don't have an answer for that in terms of uh, what it should be. Um, What I will say is that I think that if Snowden had made the choice to disclose maybe a more limited number of documents, maybe the most high-impact documents related to the 215 program or FISC opinions, had stayed in the United States, you know, to face judgment, uh, you know, he would probably be out of jail by now and and be making millions of dollars a year sort of on the speaking circuit. And so I don't know, you know, what the sort of, appropriate punishment is at this point, but in some sense, sort of his self-imposed exile in Russia, it strikes me as far worse than, than what the United States justice system would have done to him. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know how you think about that in terms of general karma, but, but I do <laughs> think that's probably, you know, descriptively accurate.
0: Do you think what he disclosed, the importance of that to the public should be taken into account in how we evaluate his actions?
1: Yeah, so this is sort of the the core debate around the Espionage Act. You know whether or not there should essentially be a public interest defense. So yes. you disclose information and you do it for a really good reason, and then therefore it's mitigating. You know the, the problem with that is that we can't have individual people substituting their their personal judgment for sort of the larger classification system. And and look, I, I I'm not going to say that the uh, the entire classification system is uh, is in. Fallible. Certainly, we have a a problem of sort of overclassifying information. But but ultimately, it it reduces down to sort of the reality that one person doesn't have the full context. They don't understand that information as it relates to other agencies, as it relates to other forms of sources and methods collection, right? No one person is really able to even appreciate the gravity of a disclosure. And so, you know, if we create a situation in which, you know, any individual with a clearance is allowed to for themselves decide whether or not this is something the public needs to know you know that is not just a, a sort of a problematic situation' it's, it's potentially a dangerous one and so you know look I um, there are trade-offs here and then there are people who have disclosed classified information that is uh, you know is within the public interest and, and has prompted important debates but I think at the end of the day sort of the the higher value of protecting the United States' ability to conduct intelligence for genuine national security purposes, I I tend to believe that that is the higher order value to protect here.
0: Now, I know Lawfare has specific rules in terms of uh, disclosure and clearances for contributors. So there's a little bit of an apples and oranges question, but if you were The Intercept, would you have published Reality Winner's Revelations?
1: You know, look, I, I can't begin to speak for, for, for The Intercept. I'm, I'm so far removed from that particular mindset. You know, what I will say is that if I was a publication that had made the decision to publish classified information, I would have done it really differently. And I think this case is an example of a, of a publication that was extraordinarily careless and yeah. was so sort Sort of um, anxious and eager to publish any classified information of any kind, sort of just for the sake of, of of the headline and for publishing the information. You know, they 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 could have done all of this reporting in a way that actually didn't identify their source. And and while I'm someone who thinks that it's a good thing that the person who uh, who released classified information was identified and prosecuted, um, you know, for for other individuals that think you know maybe this individual disclosure was uh, you know was appropriate or more. More generally, that um, that uh, unauthorized disclosures are appropriate. You know, I, I do think there's just sort of a, a basic lesson learned there on, you know, look, the, the reporters in this case were not responsible in, in protecting the identity of their source and, and ultimately outed this person. In the
0: coverage of Reality Winner, there's a phrase that pops up. They talk about that a lot of these arrests are from a World War I era espionage act and i take that to mean i don't know exactly what i take it to mean i think people insert that or maybe the uh uh, journalists insert that perhaps to indicate that it's an antiquated law that the government is reaching for in order to you know enforce prosecutions but what do you think about the propriety of using that espionage act to uh, bring prosecutions
1: yeah, so I personally don't have any sort of issue with it. I certainly, you know, this notion that, like, there are certain laws that are, like, you know, old and dusty, and therefore yeah. they don't count anymore, <laughs> yeah. right? This is this is an operative law. It's, it's used routinely. It has a, a very plain uh, provision that covers precisely this situation in which an individual with an obligation to protect national defense information disclosed it in a way that harmed the national security of the United States. So, you know, while there are um, certainly uses of the Espionage Act that can, be problematic, um, including those that were sort of discussed surrounding the use of Hillary Clinton's email server. Right, so can is it um, is it reasonable to use this law as applied to uh, to somebody who acts negligently as opposed to knowingly? Now, the reality is it actually hasn't been used for people who who uh, merely act acted negligently without some other kind of aggravating condition. You know, so I, I do think there are elements of the Espionage Act which, if uh, if you wielded in a particular way, would present Potentially challenging legal questions, but you know, as it, as it operates here, you know, I, I I fail to see sort of any objection. This is the law that prevents the disclosure of classified information, and so when someone uh, you know discloses classified information and, and the government seeks to prosecute them, you know, this is this is the remedy. I I don't sort of view that as a matter of of uh, of not uh, not playing fair.
0: Yeah. All right. Last question, Susan. Lawfare's slogan is hard national security choices. Under the Trump administration, have the choices actually gotten more clear if executing or the consequence of those choices have gotten more fraught?
1: So the hard national security choices are still out there, um, but that's not the debate we're having. Right. We're having lots and lots of debates about easy national security questions, about obvious national security questions, about things that haven't historically and probably shouldn't be national security questions. And so I think the um, the peril of the current moment is we are so focused on, on these sort of, um, you know, frankly, bizarre. Are new controversies and and uh, and the the commander in chief's you know rather odd sensibilities on matters from foreign policy to the military to uh, to the rule of law itself, uh, you know. At the same time, all of these other really difficult, complex, important, and consequential questions are out there and, and are and are going unanswered. And so, you know, whether Donald Trump is president for six more months or two more or, or three more years or, or six more years. Um, you know, at some point, we're going to have to come back and and confront the reality of these really difficult national security choices. And uh, it's going to be much harder to do it tomorrow than it is today. And and I I really worry about what it might look like, you know, years from now.
0: Brilliant answer. Susan Hennessy is Lawfare's executive editor, a Brookings fellow and a uh, national security and legal analyst for CNN. Thank you so much, Susan. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. Justice Anthony Kennedy has announced he will retire, making John Roberts the fulcrum or swing vote on the court. And it's unlikely that he will swing much. He has barely ever swung to the side of the Democrats or the progressives or the four justices who were appointed by Democratic presidents. It's true, Justice Roberts did rule against the forces who were assembled to dismantle Obamacare. That was a big exception. But remember, he was with the majority in all those 5-4 decisions. He was in the minority in Obergefell, which legalized gay marriage. Roberts warned at the time that gay marriage could lead to polygamy. I'll quote from that dissent. If there is dignity in the bond between two men and two women who seek to marry, and in their autonomy to make such profound choices, why would there be any less dignity in the bond between three people who, in exercising their autonomy, seek to make the profound choice to marry? Justice Roberts argued then. So, with Roberts as the median justice and Kennedy retiring, let's get accustomed to a Supreme Court that will be issuing decisions cheered by conservatives for years to come, decades even, Let's take into account the ages of the current justices. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 85. Stephen Breyer is 79. Sonia Sotomayor, 64. Alana Kagan, 58. Among the justices appointed by Republicans, you have Alito at 68. Roberts at 63. Gorsuch at 50. And Clarence Thomas at 70. Now I said 70. Oh, look at that. He just turned 74 days ago. Did not notice that. In researching this, I stumbled upon a video. This video is kind of amazing. It's an 18-minute long video. It is produced by his wife, and she placed it on her Facebook page. It tells the story, a story, a version of his life story, and puts into context uh, his struggles, lots of struggles, his love of Ginny, his wife, and it pays particular attention to how he defined his struggle, and that's what makes it so fascinating psychologically. So some context, Ginny Thomas is a conservative, deeply conservative activist. She was very instrumental in working with the Tea Party. Um, She has memes, pro-Trump memes, all over her Facebook page. The one closest to the posting of this video was a picture from Home Alone 2, where Trump is with Kevin, and the caption says, I wonder when liberals will blame Trump for separating this boy from his family. Ginny Thomas met Clarence Thomas, when Ginny was a member of Dick Army's staff, and Clarence Thomas was the chairman of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission under Reagan. He served for less than a year and a half on an appeals court, was appointed by George Herbert Walker Bush to the Supreme Court, and there he has been for low these many years. Now let's play some of the video. And what I want you to listen for is how Thomas's struggle is framed in this video tribute. This is a love letter. The title page of this video. And this phrase also appears at the end is, to the greatest man who walks the earth. Let's listen to a clip.
2: Do not worry about whether someone is going to say something hateful about you, whether they're going to uh, calumniate you. Don't worry about whether or not they say good things about you. That it doesn't matter.
0: So first, calumniate. calumny, calumniate, calumniate. I'm going to research that. Now, that was the first time we heard from the justice himself. He's emphasizing the first time, don't worry if someone's saying something hateful about you. Later on in this video has a lot of songs, treacly music underneath.
2: We hear this. So n- there's nothing that the, the critics can either give me or take away that's of value to. It.
0: Again, a message to critics. And once more, uh, the music's changing again.
2: The unpopularity, the... Um people's hostility toward you, uh, the bad publicity. I think it's worth paying. The price is worth paying. But it is tough sometimes.
0: And here, and again, this is an 18-minute video, and there are more quotes than I'm playing of this theme, but I'll play another one. My job is
2: to write opinions. I decide cases and write opinions. It is not to respond to idiocy and critics uh, who make statements that are unfounded.
0: I understand using his motivation for a life for a struggle that no one believed in me, that I always felt like I had something to prove to people. You know, there are a lot of people walking around with a big message for the haters. But this is the dominant theme of an 18-minute video. And three minutes of this video are just narration-less pictures of Clarence Thomas and Ginny Thomas standing before mountains and holding spaniels and such. And there is also the theme in the video of overcoming terrible circumstances. So here is Justice Thomas talking on 60 Minutes about his upbringing. When he was
2: six, the house in Pinpoint burned down and his mother moved Thomas and his brother to a tenement in Savannah. It was raw sewage in the backyard.
0: And later, a commentator notes. By sheer force of will and sheer force of
1: personality, lifted himself from meaningless poverty in in Georgia to Yale Law School, and eventually to the U.S. Supreme Court.
0: I guess the idea is, he did it, why can't you? Why can't all of you? Listen to Clarence Thomas's friend here. He's unidentified in the video. He's, he's right up front. He's in the presentation's first minute and a half. Clarence Thomas
2: is not the result of a social program, uh, some intervention of some kind where friendly people lifted him up. Uh, It came from within
0: him and within his family. Huh. Clarence Thomas did it on his own. He, according to biographies, resented his mother and credited his grandfather with instilling values in him. But he did not like his grandfather. Though his memoir is called My Grandfather's Son, He is said to have battled with his grandfather, and according to Thomas, he embraced the man and said, I love you just once, a month before his grandfather's death. Thomas's brother died years ago. According to a Washington Post story in 2007, Clarence Thomas had never been, at least at that point, inside his own sister's house. The picture is of the self-made man, to his credit. But now that he is in a position to help others, he seems to think that the best he could do is let them help themselves. And within the body he serves, that opinion will be the majority one for years to come. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Biename and Daniel Schrader, who are here to tell you, if you use drugs to escape reality, that makes you a reality loser. Stay in school. Don't leave classified documents. Steve Lickty, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has led his subscription to the Intercept Lapse, but he has re-upped his $10 monthly payment to deflect it at the line of scrimmage. The gist, Puck, John Gosling, Phaedra, Spencer Pratt, you know when you get down to it, I would say that most of these reality winners never really are winners in the end. Woo-hoo! <laughs> And as always, thanks to our Slate Plus listeners who help support the show. If you are not a member, learn more at slate.com slash gistplus. It is just $35 for your first year, and you will get ad-free versions of this and other Slate podcasts. Umperu depperoo Peru, and thanks for listening.